You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Madeline Albright. This program originally aired in 2008. Today on the show, a conversation with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Born in Prague, she spent her childhood in Belgrade, where her father served in the diplomatic corps until Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia. The family fled, eventually landing in America, where she worked her way up the diplomatic chain. Dr. Albright served as UN ambassador for Bill Clinton's administration and became the first woman ever to be named Secretary of State. Her four-year tenure took her through war in the Balkans, al-Qaeda bombings of American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania and the fragile early years of the Oslo Accords for Middle East peace. She continues to influence American politics as an advisor to Democrat Barack Obama's campaign for president. She is an outspoken critic of Bush administration policies. On Monday evening, she joined the Writers on a New England stage series at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to talk about her new book, Memo to the President. She advised the incoming president to focus on reinstating America's reputation as a moral leader. The house band, Dreadnought, performed for the crowd as Secretary Albright took the stage in front of an admittedly partisan audience. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I uh, very much welcome the idea of being able to talk to you about my book and then being able to answer some questions from Virginia and from all of you. I decided to write this book on uh, January 2nd, 2007, as I was sitting at Gerald Ford's funeral at the Washington National Cathedral. It was really a momentous event, and all the former presidents of the United States were there and the current president. And it made me think about the power of the American presidency and what all could be done with the power and the importance of America's reputation abroad. And uh, I had a very interesting time putting the book together uh, and doing research on how other presidents had come into office and what the issues were that the next president of the United States was going to face. So the first part of the book is really uh, more a how-to book in terms of uh, going back and looking at what other presidents had done. Warren Harding, not one of our best, had actually said that he wished there were a book that would tell him what to do. Uh, So this one's a little late for him, but nevertheless, uh, that is what it is. So Um, I was very glad to kind of go back over my own experiences. I had worked for President Carter and for President Clinton, and it was interesting to write about how the White House actually looks inside. It does not look like the West Wing, Uh, and how decisions are made, what the process of national security decision-making is, how the system works, who the various players are, uh, and what kind of things the next president needs to do in terms of putting together a group of people uh, in order to do the best job for the voters of the United States. And it was interesting to go back and look at various histories to see how presidents had done things. One of the reasons that the national security system was set up was that President Roosevelt uh, made decisions in such a messy way. And uh, the bureaucracy actually set up what is now known as the National Security Council and the National Security System because what President Roosevelt had done was to kind of pit his advisors against each other and there were not a lot of organized processes. Um, 
So I, I describe some of that, and I describe the tools that are available to any president. I teach at Georgetown, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. Um, so <clears throat> what are the tools? So my course is called the National Security Toolbox, and we look at those tools, which are um, diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral economic tools that are either incentives like trade and aid or disincentives like sanctions and embargoes, and then the threat of the use of force and the use of force and intelligence and law enforcement. That's it. So the first part of the book is a little bit based on my course. Um, I do advise the next president to get exercise, not all the time, but to uh, <clears throat> get some exercise. Um, and it was kind of fun to go back and see what other presidents had done. And believe it or not, John Quincy Adams actually swam naked in the Potomac. Um, and what happened was that there was a woman journalist uh, who wanted to have an interview with him, and he would never give the interview, so she went down and sat on his clothes, uh, and ultimately he gave her an interview neck deep in, in water. So I have some fun stories, and um, the first part of the book, as I say, is a little bit more of a how-to manual. The second part of the book is a little bit more complicated and um, difficult in terms of putting together and probably in terms of reading because it goes through what the major issues are that the next president is going to have to deal with. And I think the hardest part for me in writing it was to make sure that I mentioned all the issues that I thought were going to be important without making it sound like an encyclopedia. And then what was really difficult was keeping up with events. And so um, the updated part of the book is in the second part where, you know, I had hoped that Benazir Bhutto would have a chance to bring democracy to Pakistan, and so that had to be changed. And uh, various parts of the Middle East peace process or lack of that had to be updated. But it was hard to keep up with events. I could not get the Russian invasion of Georgia in, for instance. So um, the problem about writing a book on current affairs is that they are current, and it is hard to fit everything in. But I did create a framework, and I hoped that it would uh, be helpful in the debate. Now, the book is written as a little bit of a gimmick because it is a memo to the president to be read election night. But uh, the hardback came out earlier in the year, and now the paperback. And so it's really a memo for all of you uh, to see about really getting a sense of what it is in the national security field that the next president will have to deal with. So I talk about uh, basically what I now frame as six umbrella issues. First of all, how to fight terrorism without creating more terrorists. Even former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld has said that we created more terrorists, and that is certainly not the purpose of fighting terrorism. The people who attacked us on 9-11 or perpetrated the horrors in London and Madrid are murderers, plain and simple. And part of the problem about talking about a war on terror is, first of all, that it didn't start in any way that a normal war does, nor will it end that way, but it makes out of these murderers warriors within their own societies uh, and gives them a larger status than they should have. And so uh, we have to be careful not to glorify them in some way just by that particular status. The other thing is that I think we make a mistake lumping together 
all the various groups of people who don't like us. Not everybody is part of the network of al-Qaeda, and we give it more power than it should have. And when I was uh, secretary, I was actually told that it was not a good idea to even talk about Osama bin Laden because it gave him more stature. So that's the first issue. And let me say, these issues, I have to describe them in some order, but they basically are all happening at the same time. So think of them that way. The second issue is uh, how to deal with the fact that the non-proliferation regime uh, is broken, nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, it is based, has been based over these last decades on a bargain that has been uh, broken. And the bargain was that the nuclear powers uh, would not add to their nuclear arsenal, the fact that they would systematically disarm, and that the non-nuclear powers would not try to become nuclear powers, and both sides of the bargain have been broken. Uh, there has not been a systematic disarmament, and the U.S. talks about uh, and plans for a new generation of nuclear bunker busters. Uh, and in fact, the, uh, there are new nuclear powers, North Korea, for example, and we don't know what Iran is doing. The third big issue, I think, has to do with restoring the good name of democracy. I believe in democracy. I'm chairman of the board of a really interesting organization called the National Democratic Institute that supports and promotes democracy abroad. It does not impose democracy. Imposing democracy is an oxymoron. Um, and, uh, and while I also do not think that there's any part of the world that's not ready for democracy or that certain people can't uh, run their own lives, I think we're all the same. Uh, we're at various phases, but you can't declare that one group of people just can't uh, run under a democracy. Um, and I hope very much that the day will come when the Middle East is democratic and that, in fact, Iraq is a democratic and stable country. But what President Bush, in saying that Iraq had to become a model democracy, has not exactly helped the process because I don't know any leader in the world that looks at Iraq and says, I want my country to look just like that. So we need to restore the good name of democracy. The fourth big issue has to do with globalization. And um, there are many positive aspects to globalization. People come to my office and they say, so can we stop globalization? Well, you can't stop it. But I do think we need to mitigate some of the most negative aspects of it. And for me, the, the negative aspect that is really troubling is the growing division between the rich and the poor, a real gap that is developing. And it's true in this country and it's true abroad. And in this country, uh, I think we're seeing it every day um, that the middle class is uh, squeezed and that there are some very, very rich people and that there is genuine poverty in the United States. And then abroad, there clearly is a huge gap. There may be less poor people in absolute numbers, but that gap is growing. Uh, and while, and I underline this, there is no direct line between poverty and terrorism, it doesn't take a great imagination to see that uh, people that are marginalized don't have any access to their economic system or not beneficiaries of any economic system, that they're more likely to be recruited by those who don't like us. 
And then there are the issues that all go together on energy, environment, and rising food prices uh, that really require a great deal of thought and effort and not any quick fix decisions, but a way of really dealing with what is a major problem uh, for everybody, whether in the United States or internationally. And I have had to add the global financial crisis. So those are the six big umbrella issues. Now under that, uh, those umbrella issues, we have two hot wars and their unintended consequences. The first one is Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is where the people who hit us on 9-11 came from. Uh, and um, President Bush decided not to spend too much time on that. And so in the meantime, what we've seen is a deteriorating situation in Afghanistan the reemergence of the Taliban that funds itself by growing a large opium poppy crop, which is what heroin comes from, uh, which is then sold internationally, and they make a lot of money in order to acquire more arms. And President Karzai is a very fine person, but he does not have control over the whole country. And so we have the problem that Afghanistan is far from over. Uh, and the next president is going to have to deal with that. And the unintended consequence of Afghanistan is Pakistan. Now, Pakistan has everything that gives you an international migraine. It has <laughs> nuclear weapons, poverty, corruption, um, extremism, a bad education system, um, a very weak government, very bad financial conditions now, but it is located in an area that's absolutely crucial to us uh, if we're going to pursue any change in Afghanistan and that whole territory between Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Northwest Territories, is probably one of the most difficult areas in the world now. And then there's Iraq, the second hot war. I said in, in one of my previous books, usually when you write something you, and you predict something, you hope it comes true. I'm really sorry that it, this has which is that I think Iraq will go down in history as the greatest disaster in American foreign policy. Um, now, that is really a very sad statement. It means I think it's worse than Vietnam. Not in terms of the number of Americans who've died or Vietnamese versus Iraqis, but in terms of the unintended consequences. And the biggest unintended consequence is Iran. Iran has uh, emerged as a power in the region, uh, and we don't know what it's doing. Uh, I think there is a genuine question as to what its nuclear program is about. It's a very complicated country. Um, it has uh, a variety of political uh, classes and complications, and President Ahmadinejad says terrible things about Israel. And so it's a very difficult country to deal with. We have not really had relations with it. Um, since the hostage crisis um, in 1979-80. And then the other unintended consequence of Iraq is what it's doing to the whole region. So, for instance, there are somewhere between two and two and a half million refugees that have emerged from Iraq that are putting a great deal of pressure on the neighboring countries, uh, Jordan specifically and others. And then there are real issues about relationships with the neighbors. Um, the um, Minister of Defense of Iraq uh, about six months ago said that he thought we had to stay until 2018 because of the problems of bad weapons and horrible people crossing the border. 
any number of ways that Iraq is destabilizing the country, the, the region. And then the third big consequence is the loss of our moral authority. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, when people said the United States, people thought Omaha Beach and the Marshall Plan. And now people say Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And it has destroyed our capability of uh, standing up uh, for human rights and uh, against torture and the rule of law, uh, being for the rule of law. So those, those are the unintended consequences of um, Iraq. So six umbrella issues, two hot wars and unintended consequences, and then the whole rest of the world. Um, I have been very critical of the Bush administration for being unilateral. Um, but in addition to being unilateral, it's unidimensional. It is only paying attention to a small part of the world. And it has paid no attention to the continent of Africa to the point where you kind of get the feeling that they think Africa is one country. Um, it is actually 54 different countries that have many uh, differences among them, some that are functioning pretty well, like Botswana, or some that are really disaster areas, such as uh, Somalia and uh, Sudan, uh, and some in between. But they clearly need to have some American attention paid to a continent of such vast proportions and possibilities and with their best resource being their, hu their human resource, the, the people that live there. And then there's Latin America. Uh, it's not easy for the United States to ever have totally good relations with Latin America. We're a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't. If we um, don't pay any attention, they feel very neglected, and if we pay too much attention, then they think we're meddling in their internal affairs. But it is important to develop good, functioning, respectful relationships with other countries in the Western Hemisphere. Now, the most radical thing I did when I was Secretary of State was to move Canada into the Western Hemisphere. Uh, uh, you may wonder where it was. Uh, according to the State Department, it was in Europe. Uh, and so I thought it should be in the Western Hemisphere, because it actually is. And. Uh, also, because the idea was to have another huge, powerful, and very well-functioning democracy be a part of kind of the solidarity of the Americas to see uh, how we could all work together. When I was in Venezuela, uh, the place was run by a bunch of tired old men who had no connection with the people. They were democratically elected, but uh, they really had no connection. So I can understand how Hugo Chavez got elected. What is unfortunate is that he has turned um, this kind of populist base into some new kind of form of authoritarian populism and is not using his oil money to help the people as much as buy a variety of arms. And so I do think we need to be concerned. We want to make sure that democracy delivers because people want to vote and eat. And so I think it's very important that we look at how to have a different relationship with our neighbors um, in this um, hemisphere. So those are generally the issues. Uh, and then the question is how to make anything work. And just by listing those issues, it is evident that the United States needs to cooperate with other countries. People don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables, and it ends in an ism. But it basically is just playing well with others and cooperating. 
And it is very evident that if you look at those issues, we can't do them alone, no matter how strong our military is. And our military is amazing. And we do owe them all a great debt of gratitude for what they have done, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, um, um, But we need help on the other issues, which means that we have to take into consideration the rise of India, India the world's largest democracy, one with which we have a lot in common, uh, China, every time anybody talks about China, they attach the word rising. It is a huge economy, and we are totally linked. They own large portions of us, and they need us for their markets. And then there is a Russia that is back on the scene, uh, a non-democratic one, frankly, uh, that I think is worrisome, but that we have to have a functional relationship with to deal with the issues of non-proliferation or uh, climate change or energy policy and others. And then there are the Europeans who are, frankly, our best friends if they would stop examining themselves so much and uh, really become strong partners. Uh, there are any number of things that we could help to do together. So the modus operandi of the next president has to be different. It has to be a president that understands the value of cooperation, that can look at those issues deal with them, be able to do more than one thing at a time, and put together, um, and, and put together a team. So what I would like to see is a president who is confident rather than certain. Because a confident president is somebody A confident president is one who gathers a team that, in fact, does have varied opinions, who is comfortable with having different opinions expressed, who's curious, who likes to read, who wants to explore and ask a lot of questions. Um, uh, rather than a certain president who, um, in fact, wants to have people around who say yes sir, yes sir, and who doesn't even know what he doesn't know. So I hope very much that this book is useful to all of you and to the next president of the United States. Thank you all very much. Today, a special broadcast of A Conversation with Madeleine Albright. I spoke to her about her new book, Memo to the President, in front of a packed house at the Music Hall in Portsmouth as part of the Writers on a New England Stage series. In the first part of the program, she laid out some of the big issues the next president will face. Her book advises against a bold agenda for the first 100 days. I asked her what the incoming president should tackle first. I think there's no doubt that at this stage, the global financial crisis is what is front and center. And the thing that concerns me is that I hope that it does not trump everything else, because the issues that I put on the table are serious ones that are going to have to be dealt with. But there's no question that the next president is going to have to sit down and deal with that. The 100-day thing, I said for a different reason, though, is that I think that we need to do away with the kind of measurement of what is done in the first 100 days, because it's going to take more than 100 days or even 1,000 days to undo what has been going on for the last eight years. So uh, they, um, and so I think that what has to happen is that there's going to have to be some patience in terms of 
um, how the next president works and works with a new Congress, um, and not to expect kind of miracles overnight, that there's going to have to be a paste work. Some problems have to be addressed immediately, and then setting out priorities is what, um, what I think the really hard job is going to be. But I would say that the most important thing to do now is to deal with the global financial crisis. There's a follow-on question from a listener. If the U.S. loses its economic status as a world leader, how can it still be a world power? Well, I don't think it will, we will lose our, our status as an economic leader. I think that ultimately we will continue to have uh, major economic influence and will continue to be the world's most powerful economy for the foreseeable future. The problem is, though, that, and I am not one of these people that blames America for everything. I really don't. I am very proud to have represented the United States, and I would not trade places with any other country in the world. Um, um, but I think that the global financial crisis has added to the list of things that people have against us, because they say just because <clears throat> you all couldn't figure out your mortgage uh, foreclosure issue and various aspects in terms of how um, the markets worked or the corporations worked, it's, it's has a, uh, a very strong ripple effect on everybody else. And so um, while I think that we will continue to be a strong economy, because we will get our act together, I do think this adds to generally how people feel about a negative aspect of American influence. What you identified as the number one problem, repairing the tarnished image that the U.S. has around the world. What is an action item that the incoming president can take on that? Well, I think there are a few. Um, first of all, I hope close Guantanamo immediately. Um, um, and then also do something that I would hope would symbolize two things. Um, a desire to work within the international community and also to deal with the climate change issue is to uh, rejoin in a highly visible way with, uh, with intent to participate fully in whatever level of climate change talks go on. There will be talks held very early uh, next year in Poland and then later in Denmark, and we need to participate in that. Since the first thing that President Bush did was to pull out of the Kyoto talks, I do think it's very, very important to rejoin. Those two things would be very important in themselves. And then um, also systematically begin to withdraw troops from Iraq. Well, clearly this audience, or many in this audience, agree with you, but the American people have been outraged, perhaps, but not willing to hold the Bush administration accountable for the human rights abuses at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, or for pulling out of those international treaties like Kyoto. So does America want that mantle of being the moral authority? I think it's a really good question, Virginia, one that I've been mulling over for a long time in my own head. I believe that Americans are kind of the reluctant uh, leader of the world. Uh, it is not in our nature to be the world's policeman um, or the arbiter of everything. Um, I do think, however, this is my own view, is that the U.S. needs to be engaged internationally. When we were in office, um, I talked a lot about being the indispensable nation. It was actually 
a phrase that President Clinton had used first, but I liked it so much that I kept repeating it, and so it got more identified with me. And it, there are a lot of people that didn't like it. They thought it was arrogant, but the reason that I used it was not so much for a foreign audience, but for the Americans, for the following reason. It was after the end of the Cold War, and I was afraid that the U.S. would kind of withdraw behind our borders and uh, turn inward when I knew um, from my own history and background and my service in the Carter administration, and then I was at the U.N., that if the U.S. was not engaged, then nothing happened. And so the point was that we needed to be a part of something. We were indispensable often to the solution. Now, in, there's no dictionary that I've ever looked in where indispensable says alone. Um, indispensable just means that you need to be a part of something. It's sometimes useful to have other countries have our way. You know, I think that there really is a, a way that we need to participate. We don't need to be doing it alone. And so I don't think we are, we are not an empire, we are not colonizers by nature, um, and I don't think we like to be uh, in charge, but I do think we need to be a part of things. Well, a, an audience member asked, what can we do to make the UN more effective if we're talking about cooperation? Well, the UN does need work. I, I love the UN, and I kid about the fact that the reason that President Clinton selected me for the job was that when I was a sophomore in high school, I won the Rocky Mountain Empire United Nations contest. Um, uh, that being that Colorado, be Wyoming, et cetera. Uh, mainly, the reason I won it was that I could name the 51 countries in alphabetical order. Um, but the, what happened was that the UN started with that size, with 50 countries, and then um, expanded, and during the Cold War, it was basically paralyzed in action, but not in the growth of its secretariat and its bureaucracy. And then at the end of the Cold War, we asked it basically to this elephantine bureaucracy to do gymnastics, and it wasn't prepared to do what we had to. But this was the problem. Uh, the United States was to some extent responsible for artificial financial crises at the UN. Uh, because um, you have dues, and we, our fiscal year doesn't begin till October, so we always paid late. And then there was a bill for peacekeeping operations, and we owed a vast sum of money when we came into office as a result of uh, various peacekeeping operations in earlier years. And, um, and unilaterally, the United States decided, instead of paying 30.5%, to just start paying 25%. So we created an artificial crisis, financial ones, leading our best friends, the British, uh, in a general assembly session to deliver a line they had waited more than 200 years to say, which was representation without taxation. <laughs> and you know, there's some people, as I travel around, uh, I, I often get asked about the UN and people, you know, there's some people who are terrified of the UN and they think it has black helicopters that swoop down in the middle of the night and steal your lawn furniture. Um, and then there are people who don't like the UN because it's full of foreigners, which frankly can't be helped. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about the election since we are a week away from the election. Senator Joe Biden, 
famously or infamously, depending on who you ask, told a crowd in Seattle that if elected, Obama would be tested by an international crisis soon after taking office. He's taken an awful lot of heat for it, but is he right? Well, what I said in, in my book actually was that with even having made up this list, to expect the unexpected. I think that that is just uh, something that we know from experience um, across history, not only in this country but other countries, is that something unexpected does happen. And I therefore think that what Senator Biden was just was saying was what was evident from experience. But you also talk about some of the tests or exercises that a new president can run through in order to test his designated cabinet and himself. What are some of the things he can prepare for? Well, I think what, um, I mean, part of the thing is you come into the White House um, and, um, you know, it is, it's like moving into a new house and you're not really sure where everything is. I do have to tell you about an experience of mine is I had worked in the Carter administration and then I came back and what happened was you leave, uh, I left on January 20th, 1981, and another person that had been in the Situation Room at the time because they were dealing with the hostage crisis said that when he went into the Situation Room, all the photographs were of President Carter and Vice President Mondale and the rest of us, and when he came out after noon, all the pictures were already <laughs> of Reagan. So when I went there, I had worked in the Carter administration. Then I was the first Clinton person to come back into the White House. And it's like walking into your house that you rented to somebody else. Um, and there, the portraits have been moved around. And the furniture looks different. But you basically, you know, you kind of have the outlines of the house. But a lot of the people that will be coming in um, of either party, I think, don't really know the mechanisms of how it works and how the operations center works and how various of the communications work. So among the suggestions I've made in my book is to in fact have what's known as a tabletop exercise to see whether if some crisis happened they would know where everybody is and how to get in touch with everybody. And I mean this is what when President Bush when on 9-11, I mean basically they didn't know how to get him back to Washington. Vice President Cheney was in charge. Um, and there are, and from someplace. And so um, I think that um, they need to know. I mean, and something that happened to me, um, I was not born in the United States. Therefore, I am not, never was, even though Secretary of State is in the line of succession, I was taken out of the line of succession. So when they talked about what would happen, I left the, you know, I was not part of somebody they worried about in case something horrendous happened. So, <laughs> but I, I do think that there needs to be a plan that people know what to do, um, and also just generally that they can work out uh, how to make the place work. Well, you were, of course, the first female Secretary of State ever in the United States. Yeah. Admired as the most powerful woman in American politics as Secretary of State for many years. You held that honor. You also worked for Geraldine Ferraro's campaign. You worked with Hillary Clinton's campaign. Women look to you. There are a generation of girls in the Balkans who are growing up being named Madeline for you. Now you, of course, are advising Obama. But would you consider Sarah Palin's election 
as vice president to be a victory for women? Uh, well, I, um, I have to say the following thing, which is that I think that she has undoubtedly done a good job as governor of Alaska. She has had the capability of combining a professional life and a private life. Um, and is a political figure in the United States. Uh, but for me, it is not a question of gender, but the agenda. And I care about the agenda. Okay, a couple of foreign policy questions. Madam Secretary mentioned what happened in Syria, the way that it was reported in the New York Times is that Iran and Syria are together crying out against an attack on the Syrian side. Yeah. Um, they say that eight people had been killed. There were four U.S. helicopters that they report. The U.S. does report that special ops carried out a mission, but they are not confirming anything else. So a question here. What do you think of the covert operations like the one in Syria? Do you think it's justified if the bad guy is bad enough, even when it takes out innocent people who happen to be in the area? Well, I think it's very hard to tell exactly what happened there. And we are having generally problems with a variety of operations, whether they're special operations um, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, et cetera. Um, I, I do think there is always, when I talked about my national security toolbox, um, we, there are not a lot of tools in that toolbox, frankly, given how powerful the United States is. And intelligence is one of them, and covert intelligence is always a tool. The issue has been, when you study about covert intelligence, is is it something that is in line with stated policy? Uh, a president signs a number of things called findings, which uh, you can, are there, people are allowed to do covert intelligence if it is in line with policy. I don't know exactly what the policy is, so I can't really comment on that. I think the hard part always is with the use of force, and basically, force is a pretty blunt tool. And often, in order to get the worst guys, unfortunately, innocent people die. That is the problem with deciding whether you're ever going to use the tool of force. But what this leads to, I think, is an I, something that I think needs to happen in the region. Um, I said that I thought our military had done a brilliant job, and nobody can criticize them in terms of what they have been asked to do. I mean, they are fulfilling a mission that was set out. And I think, as I said, they have earned our respect. But for me, there is no military solution to Iraq. It has to be a political solution. Um, and the political solution also has to go in the region. And one of the things that some of us have been advocating for some time is a regional diplomatic effort because this is exactly the problem. It's hard to tell what happened on this border. That's why I'm finding it uncomfortable to comment on it. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether there were um, arms crossing the border or I don't know what the issue was. But the bottom line is, is that Syria and Iran and the other neighbors in the area have something to say about what's going on in Iraq. And just as in the Balkans, we had a contact group of countries that had an interest in what was going on. I think there needs to be a regional diplomatic approach to figure out what exactly the issues are here. 
and in order to try to get the neighbors involved in this, which leads to another question, which is should we talk to people we don't like? The answer is we have to, and, um, and I think that's another part of it. Well, you're talking about diplomacy, and I, I found in the book a lot of regret about the role of the diplomat. You point to U.S. embassies, which were once citadels of freedom throughout the world, now being built like fortresses that the ambassadors hide behind or the staff hides behind. How is diplomacy changing, and how can we work with it again? Well, it's changed completely, and it's interesting, you know, um, Obviously, in the olden days, it was that diplomats had a great deal of um, uh, personal ability to make policy because they didn't hear from the capital. John Adams, when he went out, didn't call home. Uh, and basically, they were able to uh, have more initiative. So with more and more information, um, and the ability of information to be transmitted quickly, ambassadors have less of kind of uh, capability of operating on their own. But then also what has happened is that our embassies have become targets, unfortunately. And one of the things when I was secretary, we have a wall in the State Department of diplomats who lost their lives in um, while they were in office and at that stage we were not in a war and actually more diplomats had died than high-level military people and everybody thinks of diplomacy as kind of this cushy job that you go to receptions and have a lot of servants the bottom line is it's a very dangerous job these days and I loved being Secretary of State except on August 7th 1998 mm -hmm. when our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were blown up and the one in Kenya was actually on the main drag in the middle of Nairobi. And when we, I had to um, have a, an investigation of everything, I was blamed for the whole thing. And even before that, there had been ways of beginning to construct these huge fortress-like embassies. The bottom line is they are the opposite of what an embassy should be. An, an ambassador and embassy should be the eyes and ears of the sending country in the host country should be welcoming visitors. We used to have libraries in our embassies and people could come and go. Now they really are these, these fortresses. <laughs> and a lot of the embassies are outside of the, you know, somewhere in the suburbs and it undermines what an ambassador can do. But also, um, you have to be able to protect your ambassadors. You have to be able to protect the people who work for you, not only the Americans, but the Foreign Service nationals that work in the embassies. And it is the tragedy of our times that there can't be that kind of open diplomatic work. Well, of course, those bombings were found to be Al-Qaeda bombings. You mentioned earlier in your remarks that it was part of your policy not to mention the name of Osama bin Laden, not to aggrandize him as a force to be reckoned with. How would you advise the incoming president on dealing with al-Qaeda? Well, first let me go back on something, because we tried very hard to figure out how to get back, whether we mentioned Osama bin Laden or not, or al-Qaeda, how we knew that it had come from him. And so, uh, if you remember, we launched cruise mm -hmm. missiles uh, against his camps in Afghanistan. Sudan. And if you also remember, we were criticized for mm -hmm. it. We were also criticized for not having gotten him 
um, when in fact now it's been eight years and thousands of forces. But we decided, and it goes back to an earlier question, not to just launch cruise missiles in case he was in some camp um, in order not to kill innocent people. So we would, off, we would say that we did not have actionable intelligence was mm -hmm. the terminology uh, on that. I do think that the issue here is that um, in fighting terrorism now, I think we need to isolate al-Qaeda, as I said, not to just kind of lump everybody together. And I think ultimately it's going to have to come from inside the Muslim community that this is not, his kind of actions are not representative of Islam, and we have to be very careful not to label everybody as, you know, calling it Islamo-fascists or whatever terms people use. But the more publicity we give to them, the, the more it works for them. But there are lots of different theories about this. Uh, but I do remember we were sitting with our people and they said that it's probably better not to make him kind of uh, more important within his own society than he already is. But I think the hard part here is that the next president is going to have to deal with, with the issues that are out there in terms of isolating the terrorists, but also trying to find out what the roots of terrorism are. And I think for that reason, it's going to take doing things about educational systems in the countries, trying to figure out how to make the societies better for the people so that then they are the ones that reject the extremism. Many of the audience members wanted to know if you had ever considered running for president. Of course, you're foreign-born, so you could not. Right. But there was a funny bit in the book where you were talking about your class at Georgetown where you do this kind of mock yeah. international scene and you said you rather enjoyed I playing I the president. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I shouldn't give this away, we're about to do um, um, one of these scenes, but in the end I arrive, I have a great leather jacket that the Air Force gave to me and so I wear that along with one of my <laughs> naval baseball caps and I kind of arrive on the scene. But. But what I do during this game, which is fun, is uh, before I turn into the president, I'm the deus ex machina. And the, the closer the students get to resolving any issue, I screw it up by doing something unexpected. <laughs> well, I know you're advising the Obama campaign now. Do you wish you were still making policy? I think that uh, once you've made policy, you always wish you were making policy. But the thing that happens is you know that the, the, the minute you enter the job, you also know it's going to end. And so uh, you maintain, somebody asked me what would be my advice to the next Secretary of State, and that is to love every single day, um, even though they're hard, and to realize that I believe it's the best job in the world, frankly. I think it's actually better than being president because you don't have to worry about health policy or social security or things that, um, um, and, and to have the opportunity to represent the United States. I mean, I, as I said, I wasn't born here, but to sit behind a sign that said United States was a privilege that I loved every day, and I tried to extend every day. Uh, I started flying around the word counterclockwise to extend every day. Yeah. It worked for Superman, I believe. <laughs> well, given that, if Obama wins, and he were to ask you if you would like to serve as Secretary of State, could we see a Madam Albright 
version 2.0? Well, I, I actually don't think about it because it doesn't happen. Only two people in our entire history have been Secretary of State twice, and one was New Hampshire's own Daniel Webster, <laughs> so I don't expect it to happen. You mentioned that presidents are not superhuman. They are capable of noble gestures, but also pettiness and self-preoccupation. What are the human failings you would warn the next president against? I think that the hardest part is not to, and this is not just the president, but any high-level official, is not to take everything personally. And it's very hard. I, I make jokes about the fact that I now look thinner uh, because when I was Secretary of State, I had to develop a thicker skin. Um, <laughs> because part of the thing is that every day, people like you, uh, you know, the press really, uh, in different, you always have to end up being critical of the press anyway. But, uh, but the bottom line is that there are some very nasty things that are said, and some of them have, bear no relationship to reality. The other, I think, is not to hold grudges against people. I think that is a very important part. And the other is, as I say, to exercise, but not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're Secretary of State, to try not to eat everything that's put in front of you. <laughs> I, I used to say that I was eating for my country. That's Madeleine Albright on stage at the Portsmouth Music Hall. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth. Secretary Albright joined us for the Writers on a New England Stage series. To hear the entire performance or to listen to other shows from the series, visit nhpr.org and click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. Writers on a New England Stage is a partnership of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in collaboration with River Run Books. Clegg Sound Associates provided audio engineering for the broadcast. Our recording engineer was Ryan Stack. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. The broadcast producer and senior producer of Word of Mouth is Andrew Walsh. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is New Hampshire Public Radio.